Are you looking for a way to save a little money? What about getting your subscriptions under control? If so, then I've got just the solution for you. Rocket Money. With the help of Rocket Money, I was able to find a subscription that I completely forgot to cancel before the free trial was up. I'm sure you've all been there. And Rocket Money can help me cancel it. Between streaming platforms, apps, delivery services, and even parenting and kids subscriptions, it's hard to keep track of exactly what you're spending and how much it all adds up to each and every month. Not to mention the fact that it seems every single day one of those subscriptions suddenly jumps up in price. Rocket Money alerts you when this happens so you're never caught unawares. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With them, I can see clearly what my monthly spending is and how it compares to the month before, making saving money and taking control over my finances so much easier. They'll also try to negotiate lowering your bills up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll even deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. That's rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. Rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. Today's podcast is brought to you by newspapers.com, the ultimate destination for exploring the mysteries of the past. If you're fascinated by true crime, get ready to dive into the stories that made headlines. Newspapers.com offers a billion pages of historical newspapers from the U.S. and beyond, and you can search the entire collection in seconds. Their vast newspaper collection is a goldmine for eyewitness accounts, crime scene photos, news reports, and more. Whether you're interested in famous crimes or long-forgotten cases, Newspapers.com gives you a front-row seat to more than 300 years of history. For our listeners, Newspapers.com has a special offer. Use the code CUPOFMURDER for an exclusive 20% discount on your subscription. That's promo code CUPOFMURDER at Newspapers.com. Sign up today and start unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Public opinion can absolutely shape a case and, more seriously, the outcome of a trial. On April 10th, 1863, a woman was killed inside of an upscale brothel and, simply because of the nature of her work, the public opinion completely altered the way her suspected killer was handled in court. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Helen Jewett, born October 18, 1813, as Dorcas Doyen, grew up in a working-class family in Temple, Maine, with an alcoholic father and a mother who passed away when she was very young. Because money was a constant issue, Helen began working as a servant at the age of 12 or 13, in the home of Chief Justice Nathan Weston of the Maine Supreme Judicial Court a home she dutifully served until she turned 18 when she moved to Portland, Maine, and began working as a sex worker under an assumed name. She would eventually move on to Boston and, finally, New York, all under a series of different false identities. On April 9, 1836, 
On an unseasonably cold night in New York City, a woman named Rosina Townsend woke up in her first floor bedroom in the home that she leased in downtown Manhattan to the sound of knocking at her door. When she opened it, she saw a man standing there and asking to be let out of the locked front entry. Now, you see, Rosina lived in a very successful and well-maintained brothel, where each of the nine girls living and working there rented out specific rooms of the large home to entertain their clients. And it was the responsibility of each of these girls to see their gentleman caller out of the door that had been locked for their safety. So when this man asked Rosina for a favor, she told him, get your woman to let you out, and quickly fell back asleep in her closed bedroom with her own companion laying beside her fast asleep. Not long after, Rosina was roused out of bed yet again, but this time to knocking that seemed to be coming from the outside of the home. So loud that this time her bedmate woke up with a start. Looking at the clock, Rosina realized it was 3 a.m. on April 10th. The knocker was apparently a man who had arranged a late-night rendezvous with a woman named Elizabeth Salters. And after Rosina checked out his identity lit up the lamp and let him into the house. He nodded his thanks and quickly went upstairs to find Elizabeth. It was at this point that Rosina noticed something was off about the house that night. In addition to the knocking and the men who woke her up twice that night, she noticed that a globe lamp was sitting on the marble-topped table in the parlor situated in the back of the house. One that not only lit up, but was out of place and away from its matching partner that sat upstairs in a second-floor bedroom. Walking further into the parlor, she saw that the back door of the house was ajar. A door that, while it did not have a key, did have a bar keeping it shut that could only be moved by anyone on the inside of the house, and large pickets installed over top to keep any unwanted guests away from the brothel. Assuming one of the guests went outside to use the outdoor bathroom and forgot to replace the bar, Rosina closed the door and wondered to herself why anyone would have chosen to go out in the bitter cold to relieve themselves instead of using the available chamber pots. Shrugging it off but still feeling uneasy, she went back into her room and dozed off. Ten minutes later, the open door was enough to stir her from her sleep. And after checking the door again and calling out to the backyard a few times, she went upstairs to see which of the two possible rooms was missing its lamp. After checking the first room and finding it locked, Rosina walked into the room belonging to Helen Jewett and, finding it unlatched, pushed it open and found herself blown over by a billow of smoke. Worried Helen and her companion were inside suffocating to death, Rosina began pounding on the door of one of the other girls and cried out fire to anyone who would listen. All hell broke loose inside of the brothel, and as watchmen tried to come help, girls and their companions ran out of the house as fast as they could. Meanwhile, Rosina and a woman named Maria Stevens pushed past the smoke to try and find Helen. When they did, they found that not only was the bed smoldering, but 23-year-old Helen was still lying there with most of her skin and nightclothes charred. However, that was not the most shocking discovery the women made. It appeared that while Helen had perished inside of her room, the fire was not her cause of death. No, it was the three long gashes along her brow that caused her blood to seep into her pillow. And her nightly companion was nowhere to be seen. After dousing the fire in Helen's room, one of the watchmen who came to assist the women found a handkerchief marked with a man's name shoved under a bed pillow and pocketed the item as a potential piece of evidence. 
However, by the time they had the foresight to demand no one leave the premises, all the nervous, half-dressed men who had stood in the hallway had vanished into the night, leaving only the women, though one did manage to escape, to answer any of the questions that they may have about the murder. At the time of Helen's murder, the city had no professional police force, but instead a small number of men that had full-time employment as police and watch officers. One of them was a man named George Noble, the assistant captain of the watch, who happened to be on duty at the Century Station at City Hall Park when the news of the murder started to spread. He and a few of his watchmen came to the brothel about an hour after Rosina noticed the fire, and, along with policeman Dennis Brink, a 10-year veteran who lived two blocks away, directed the rest of the watchmen to search the backyard for any clues pertaining to who Helen's murderer might be. Nothing was found, but as the sun began to rise, someone spotted a hatchet lying on the ground near the back fence that was wet and covered in dirt. Jumping the fence to see if that's how the killer may have escaped, another watchman found a long cloak about 15 feet from the fence, leading George and Dennis to theorize that the killer discarded the murder weapon, jumped over the fence, and dropped his cloak as he ran from the scene of his bloody crime. A coroner's report would later confirm the suspicions that the hatchet was likely the murder weapon, and that, given the position of Helen's body, she was completely surprised by the attack against her. Wanting to know more about Helen, George and Dennis began questioning the women working in the brothel, and Rosina provided a pretty decent timeline of events for the night of April 9th and early morning hours of April 10th. According to the girls, every single Saturday night, Helen was visited by a young man known only as Bill Easy. But for some reason, on April 9th, Helen had asked Rosina to bar Bill's entrance into the home because she planned on seeing someone else. Rosina then said that, instead of Bill, she let in a man named Frank Rivers, who came to see Helen between 9 and 10 that night. Though she never really got a good look at the man because he pulled his cloak in a way that made sure to obscure his identity. Frank went right up to Helen's room and was still there at 11 p.m. when Helen called down for a bottle of champagne. When Rosina brought it up, she saw Frank Rivers lounging in Helen's bed reading. No one ever saw Frank leave and no one else came calling for Helen Jewett. Realizing that they needed to speak with Frank, someone in the house supplied his business address to George Noble and Dennis Brink and, together they learned that Frank's real name was actually Richard P. Robinson and that he lived in a boarding house just a half a mile away from the brothel. When they knocked on the door belonging to Richard Robinson and his roommate, James Two, it was James who woke and opened the door while Richard lay still asleep. Upon entering the room, George and Dennis announced that they were policemen and that they were looking for Richard who, by this point, James had shaken to try and wake. As he got up to try and pull on a pair of pants, Dennis Brink noticed that one of his pant legs had a whitewash or paint stain on it. Asking him to come with them to the police office, Richard agreed and James volunteered to join them to keep his friend company. While waiting for James to be ready, the officers asked Richard if he owned a dark cloth coat. He claimed he did not and that his cloak, made of much finer materials, was still inside of his room. When first meeting Richard, the officers noted how unconcerned he looked that they were coming in to question him. They also noted how quickly that demeanor changed once they, instead of going to the office, started to head in the direction of the brothel. There he was told of Helen's murder and, though denying any knowledge of the woman or her death, the men arrested him on suspicion of murder. 
He was then ushered into the brothel where one of the neighboring brothel keepers asked him what possessed him to commit such a heinous crime. His reason? Quote, Do you think I would blast my brilliant prospects so ridiculous an act? I am a young man of only 19 years of age yesterday with most brilliant prospects. And when told of the handkerchief found in Helen's bed, marked with the name George P. Marston, said, there's another man's handkerchief under the pillow with his name in full upon it. I am not afraid that I shall be convicted. He was then walked upstairs to the crime scene and forced to look upon the carnage. While the officer scrutinized his reactions, Richard insisted that he was an innocent man and that he was home since 11 the night before. Still sure of his guilt, the coroner at the scene picked 12 men from the crowd that was gathering on the street in front of the brothel and named them as the jury in this case. The men listened as Rosina Townsend gave her firsthand account of the evening in question, and as Elizabeth Salters and Emma French, residents of the home, testified to seeing Richard Robinson arrive on Saturday evening and go upstairs with Helen. Another woman, a brothel keeper from around the corner, spoke next and said that Richard Robinson frequented her establishment when Helen worked there, usually under the name Frank Rivers, and had been doing so since 1835, while coroners came forward and described the hatchet and cloak, while Dennis Brink described Richard's arrest. One of the last witnesses to come forward was James Two, Richard's roommate, who, when asked to tell them what he knew about Richard's movements the night in question, produced a story that was incredibly vague and pretty damning. According to James, he and Richard had tea together in the boarding house the night of April 9th, and said that they, until 7.30 p.m., went out for a walk together. They parted ways near the American Museum at around 8.30 p.m., and James admitted that he himself visited the brothel sometime between 9.30 and 10.30 p.m., though he claimed that he and the woman he came to see, Elizabeth Salters, only spoke for a few moments downstairs. He went home at around 10.30 p.m. and fell asleep at 11.15. He said that Richard was not in their room when he came back, but when James awoke sometime near 1 a.m., his roommate was sound asleep in his bed. While his times were only an estimation, which did lead to some credibility in his story, James testified that Richard only knew Helen for a few weeks before her murder, something every other woman living in the home denied vehemently. And when shown the cloak that was found near the brothel's back fence, James responded that, while he did not know if the cloak did belong to Richard, he had seen his friend wearing one similar from time to time. For everyone in the courtroom and the press reporting on the case, this was as good as a positive identification. Press who, it should be mentioned, did a fine job of describing the crime scene and the nature of Helen's work in the most grotesque and salacious way possible, with some even going as far as to report that Helen, given the lifestyle she chose to live, deserved the fate that she was handed making it one of the first sex scandals in history to receive such a detailed press reporting for all the world to see. After days of testimony, the judge in charge of the case ordered the jury to disregard all of the testimony made by any of Helen's co-workers, simply because of the nature of their employment. Because of this, after less than 30 minutes of deliberation, the 12 men came back and ruled that Richard Robinson was innocent of the charges against him. After his trial, a number of personal letters written by Richard Robinson were made public that showed him to be absolutely capable of vicious and deviant sexual behavior. Unfortunately, nothing could be done about this, and he, 
after moving to Texas and becoming a respectable frontier citizen, got to live out the rest of his life as a free man who may or may not have gotten away with murder simply because of the public's opinion of his victim. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to A Terrible Thing Happened on April 11th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.